Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number three, Liberty to Criticize Our Rulers Even When It Was Illegal. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there is something in electoral history he doesn't know, probably isn't worth knowing. Luke. Well, Rick, here we get into uh, probably one of the most contentious and live elements of American liberty today uh, that is in a different way um, contentious and live today as it was back then. That's freedom of expression, uh, freedom of speech. Uh, certainly the, the people who are, who are going to talk about here wouldn't recognize our modern free speech regime but in some ways the seeds of it are planted uh, well before the revolution. It's, it's older than, than the American revolution itself. Um, we also get some fascinating political dynamics that we'll see play out into the revolution and beyond, tensions between different interests, different groups, uh, different personality types. Uh, and, and we'll see all of this intersect in um, one of the great institutions of American life, the, the jury uh, and, and its central role as a, as a bulwark of, of liberty, religious liberty of speech otherwise. Um, everybody likes a courtroom drama. Everybody – yes, indeed and, uh, and a great profit maker for, uh, for whatever the fellow's name who wrote Law and Order is. I can't remember. Um, but let's – I guess we, we should go back not unlike the Flushing Remonstrance. You know, the, the trial of, of John Peter Zinger takes place in a world that, that will seem foreign to many – Americans today. It's a literate world. It's a world with a robust printing culture far more than anything that would have existed in, in New Amsterdam or certainly in Jamestown. You have a, an industry of words uh, that is alive and well in the United States. Well, what will become the United States, the American colonies? The American colonies are also um, much more literate than uh, their, their counterparts in the home country, in Great Britain. Um, Literacy rates I think are generally estimated to be – to range between 60 and 80 percent. 
uh, people buy and consume a great deal of the written word and there is a, an entire strata of the economy devoted to printing and providing disposable, ephemeral um, versions of even very highbrow ideas. There aren't a whole lot of bookmakers in the United States in the sense of people who are binding books but there are a whole lot of pamphleteers and people are reading pamphlets. They're reading newspapers. They're reading um, sermons, etc. They're re reading almanacs. And Zenger emerges at the at the dawn of this, you know, golden age of American printing. Who is he? How does he get here? And what gets him in trouble? Well, John Peter Zenger was a refugee. His family were Protestants from the Palatine, which was Western Germany. It was a region that had been overrun by Louis the Fourteenth and just devastated in those. Wars of the late 17th century running on into the 18th century. So uh, Zanger's mother and father, they take ship. They want to come to New York. Zanger's father dies on the boat. Uh, when he arrives, his mother apprentices him. He's still a kid uh, to William Bradford who is the official printer in New York, in the colony of New York. And so that's where he learns his trade. And then he gets an opportunity to set up his own newspaper as a result of a faction fight among the local New York elite. And who who is this elite? Are they Dutch holdovers? Are they English landowners? Are they all of the above? Uh, what sort of the, are the predominant divides in the New York elite? There are there are still Dutch families who hang on uh, who have intermarried to some extent with the English, uh, the Schuylers. That, that's one example and they'll keep going uh, through, through the American Revolution and the early days of the early republic. Uh, a lot of them are merchants. There are also landowners, mostly uh, up, up the Hudson River and then to the west in New Jersey. And um, sometimes uh, the factions coalesce around this economic split. There's a merchant's faction and there's a landowner's faction. And these two factions are, are competing for the favor of whoever happens to be the colonial governor, whoever London sends out uh, to run this, this colony. Uh, they, have, they have taken it from the Dutch back in the 17th century. Uh, they have been owning it for over 60 years. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the quality of the governors they send over is various. And uh, early in the 1730s, a new one appears, a man named William Cosby. And when he arrives, he arrives six months after he got his commission. He wants his back pay. He, he wants to be paid for the six months that he hadn't yet shown up. Uh, his job has, had been filled by another man who was taking his pay and he wants it back <laughs> from, from this guy. So this ends up in the local court. And there, uh, the local judge, who was a local grandee named Lewis Morris, rules against Governor Cosby. You know, no, we're not going to give you your back pay. So Cosby kicks Morris off the bench and in his place, he puts a much younger rival of Morris, a man named Delancey from, the, from a different political faction. OK, now begins the fight because the new governor has offended one of the local powers that be and Lewis Morris does not like this. 
So to strike back, he approaches John Peter Zenger, the young immigrant uh, printer who has learned the skills of printing, and he sets him up with his own newspaper. And this newspaper will be the rival of the existing newspaper, which enjoys the patronage of the governor, and it will devote many of its pages to criticizing Governor Cosby and all his deeds and all his works and all his associates, usually indirectly. They don't mention Cosby by name, but it's pretty clear who they're talking about. They use uh, insulting comparisons. They write about one of Cosby's um, friends. They describe him as a spaniel, <laughs> no, which, is, which is a lap, lap dog uh, in those days. Uh, there's another uh, advertisement, bogus advertisement, uh, having to do with a monkey, which is a reference to Cosby himself. You know, when they run out of local stuff to print, they just reprint uh, anti-establishment polemics from London journals, which is a very common thing in American newspapers. They do a lot of reprinting of, uh, of stuff that's going on in England. So this goes on for a while and, and one result is that the Morris faction wins an election to the local city council. They drive the Cosbyites out. And then at this point, Governor Cosby decides enough is enough. Have to stop this newspaper that's needling me and causing me problems. So he approaches the grand jury to ask the local grand jury to initiate a prosecution for seditious libel. Now, seditious libel means statements that could cause uproar uh, and conflict, that could, that could, in attacking the government, uh, could cause violence and bloodshed. That's the reasoning behind the effort to suppress such statements. This is a, a tradition from English law going back 100 years in the home country. The grand jury won't do it. So then Cosby does what Peter Stuyvesant would have done in the first place. He just issues an order to suppress Zenger's paper uh, and he has him locked up. So then Zenger tries to get legal representation and we enter the next phase of this, uh, of this story. So we have Peter Zenger in jail. Now, this is still a, a small colony in many respects. He's, he's chucked into a cell in the basement of City Hall, right. which has just been built. So you know, we have this world in which Cosby is presumably working upstairs. Right. Uh, the, the, the courts are probably operating on a different one of the two or three floors and then you know, Zanger right. is howling at people downstairs um, when they come by. Uh, so it's all very much on top of, of itself and, and the intimacy of the conflict here says a lot about the nature of politics in early early New York. But um, what what happens? Why why is it not as simple a matter? You know, surely Zenger can get an attorney. That's part of the English common law. He can get himself represented and then uh, demand a writ of habeas corpus to have his case heard. Why? Which he does. Which he does. Why isn't that the end of the story? Well, uh, the first two attorneys he picks, they are, they are local attorneys and they've been helping him out on the newspaper. They're part of the Morris faction. Uh, they've been helping him write a lot of his copy. 
So they're, they're well acquainted. And their opening gambit is very bold. They go before Judge Delancey, uh, who, is, uh, who is the ally and the instrument of Governor Cosby. They go before Judge Delancey and they say, well, you should not be uh, hearing this trial at all because the commission that the governor gave you uh, was for good behavior. And that's not the tenure of, of judges in the English tradition. Uh, judges or your, your commission was uh, – Sarah, let me, let me start that again. Okay. Uh, they go before Judge Delancey and they say, uh, your commission is to serve at the pleasure of the governor. And this is not uh, the way the tenure of judges works under English law. Judges are supposed to have tenure for good behavior, meaning for life unless they commit some crime. But if a judge can serve at the pleasure of the executive who picks him, then he's, he's the tool of that man. He, he's the puppet of that man and we want our judges to be independent. So you, Judge Delancey, ought to uh, recuse yourself from this whole action. So then what Delancey does in return is he disbars these two attorneys. <laughs> okay, So now, now Zanger, uh, Zanger has to get another attorney and the attorney that is procured for him – and this is all being arranged by, you know, by Lewis Morris, by, by, by the faction. Uh, they go to Philadelphia, uh, which is a larger city than New York, largest in the colonies, and they hire a man named Andrew Hamilton a Scotsman who's been living here for decades and who has the reputation of being the best lawyer in British North America. So Hamilton will – Andrew Hamilton, no relation to Alexander, um, no relation to the star of Broadway. But Alex, Andrew Hamilton will come to New York to be Zanger's lawyer. And, and Hamilton being a Scotsman – is pertinent in a couple of ways that I can think of. One of which, of course, is that although he's been practicing in a common law jurisdiction in Philadelphia, he also will have known the Roman law because Scotland, unlike England, is governed according to uh, Roman civil law, the legacy sort of legal system of the Code of Justinian. And it's from that that he ultimately derives this, this principle of truth being a defense of um, of any criticism of the government. But I don't want to jump ahead too fast. What does Hamilton do when he shows up in New York? Well, the trial begins. Uh, Zanger uh, still has a local lawyer. After his, his first two choices were uh, disbarred, uh, there was a local lawyer in the interim who did good service for him in the jury selection. Uh, the first list of jurors, of potential jurors that was presented – um, was just stuffed with Cosby supporters, merchants who traded with him, uh, people on the city council who had been his supporters who would lost the last, last election. And, and these was, were supposed to be randomly drawn. Yeah, yeah. This was, but this was a stacked, you know, stacked <laughs> list. And this, this, this local lawyer did say, no, let's have another list. So they got a random list. So that was a very important thing that was done. But then uh, Hamilton arrives and the trial is held. We're now in the summer of 1735. Uh, doing this trial in in the city hall of New York City, and Zanger's local lawyer opens, and he opens with a with a very plausible defense, which is that the attacks in Zanger's newspaper 
mostly did not name Cosby. So where is the seditious libel? I mean, who who can say who is being attacked here? You know, it's all spaniels and monkeys and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, what what's going on? Uh, ev- everybody knows who is being attacked, but it's a very plausible literal defense. Then Andrew Hamilton addresses the court and says, I'll, I will spare the prosecution trouble. Uh, I will admit uh, that everything they're objecting to was printed by my client. And as uh, Zanger will write in his account of his trial, there was silence for some time after Hamilton said it. It looks like he's giving the game away. He's, he's, he's saying, yep, my client did print all that stuff. You don't have to prove it. Now, under the doctrine of seditious libel, the only thing that was supposed to be at issue in a trial was did the offending journal actually say the things that it's being accused of? You know, if you could, if you could weasel out of it somehow, you were off the hook. But if you actually printed them, according to the then current doctrine of seditious libel, too bad. You were guilty. So it looks like Andrew Hamilton has given up the game at the very beginning of it. But we will see in the argument that he makes that he has other thoughts in mind. Is, is Zenger read in on this or does he sort of gulp audibly in a silent courtroom? Do we have a sense of how – this must have been a really He's dramatic there. moment. He yeah. is there. Um, we don't know uh, what – how he reacted. We have an account that he himself wrote after it was all over. All he says of this moment was that there was silence for, for some time in the courtroom after Hamilton made this startling admission against his own interests. But uh, Hamilton's a clever guy. He's been in, in courts for a long, long time and he, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's, he's not a spring chicken. He's a seasoned litigator. Delancey, on the other hand, is – He's in his early 30s. Yeah. Hamilton's 59 years old. He's been in courtrooms longer than Delancey's been alive. So he and knows he, what he's doing. So he uses this to his advantage. But yes. what, does he, what does he do to sort of play Delancey from a position of weakness? Well, Delancey will, will intervene in his argument, which is quite extensive. It's like twelve or 13,000 words when okay. it's all printed out. It's like a huge oration broken up by intercha- occasional interchanges with, with the judge and then with the prosecuting counsel. And there are moments when Judge Delancey will say, well, no, you can't argue that. That's not what the law says. He does intervene from time to time in that fashion and he's correct by the way. Mm. I mean he is, he is reading the law of seditious libel as it exists. He knows his black letter he, law. He, he knows that. And then so what Hamilton will do is he will apologize and then he'll say the same thing later in a different <laughs> way you know, or he'll, you know, or he'll um, shift his, his, his grounds a bit and then come back to it. So you know, Hamilton – wants to make an argument and he wants to perform and he is not going to be distracted from this by the judge. He basically runs rings around him. And he's doing this pro bono even though there are powerful political interests at stake here who certainly could compensate him and there's a lot of there's a lot of money on the line here in addition yes. to principle. But for Hamilton, it's just – he's just doing it to do it. He's yes, trying I, to make a point. Right, as, as lawyers continue to do because you know, if, if, if he should win, then his reputation is increased and, and he gets to charge higher fees later on. But no, you're right. He's doing this for free. Free. So then what is the kind of the ultimate upshot that he, that he takes? What, what is the, the linchpin that even though he seems to have given the game away, carries the day? 
Well, he says, and he says it in different ways over and over again, he says it is a right which all freemen claim to complain when they are hurt. He says we have a right to complain because how else can wrongs be rectified? Uh, suppose, suppose our rulers are mistaken and suppose we haven't voted them out of office or we can't. You know, suppose as in New York, you have a, pol a dominant political faction that's allied with the governor. You know, and you can't, you can't change, change the people who are in power. What are you going to do? To whom are you going to appeal? You have to be able to complain. And this is what Hamilton says over and over again, that if men are hurt, they have a right to complain. He says it comes from nature and from the laws of our country. I mean, the laws of our country is a bit of a stretch, but he's also invoking nature as something that gives free men a right to complain when they are hurt. Then he says, you know, people who have imposed bad policies will make the complaint the source of a new offense. How fair is that? You know, that, that's a terrible thing. This is his main argument, which he keeps coming back to. He, he, he has ancillary arguments. Um, he says that, uh, you know, the prosecution was trying to say that, well, Governor Cosby is the king's representative. We can't criticize him. And then Hamilton says, well, isn't this great? Uh, the king's representative is claiming privileges which belong to the king. Now, of course, I would never criticize the king. Does that apply to this guy? And, and then he says, um, isn't it amazing that people will allow upstarts to assume these privileges? So he's trying to taunt you know, the members of the jury and the audience, of course, the audience in the courtroom who will go home and tell all their friends what's going on. So he's appealing to the, to the pride and the self-esteem of the jury and uh, of New Yorkers. But, but, but the main argument that he keeps going back to is that when – we are misgoverned when we are hurt. We have to have a right to complain because that's the only recourse, the only possibility for amending such wrongs. Well, no, actually it's not the only one. He mentions another one. He holds up the prospect of another one and he refers to uh, the first Brutus from Roman history who helped overthrow the Roman monarchy and killed two of his own sons when they seemed to be plotting a royal restoration. And he also mentions John Hampton from the English Civil War, whose protest against an illegal tax helped get the whole thing going. So he is saying, if you don't allow complaints, then this will happen. Then you will have revolution. So don't bring that on. Don't bring that on. Allow people to complain allow people to say what's wrong when they are being wronged. And that is the only remedy and recourse that they have. He, he seems to be appealing to, to a couple of ideas that I think must be deeply embedded in, in his listening audience that he can assume at least that his jurors take seriously. And one of these is you know, Cosby has conducted himself in a, in a venal, self-gratifying way. He's dispensed with Justice, with Justice Morris for selfish reasons in violation of, of the, the norm that judges hold their seat under conditions of good behavior. He's put a young judge in Delancey in place, not someone of, of an august career who's you know, leaving the bar to become a judge after a long, a long career. 
Um, everyone in that room must know that politics is underpinning all of this and that anyone who has a sort of general bias towards lawfulness will know that Cosby and Delancey, as much as they may stand on the letter of the law, have not walked to the spirit of the law, so to speak, in the, in the events leading up to this process and that they're punishing a newspaper man to sort of cover for themselves. But the second principle which you just touched on that I think is, is something that we miss as Americans today is that liberty isn't born out of a pacific unity. Uh, it doesn't come out of uh, abstract, uh, you know, disassociated reasoning among, among elevated elites. It's something that comes out of the spirit of faction and politicking and, uh, and citizens, little d democratic citizens talking and disputing amongst themselves or – And responding to all and of that. responding to all of that, right. And, and I think that that's something that, that is so easy to forget because we have a tendency today to look at politics or, or politicking and say, oh, well, that's gross. You know, that's, that's low. That's dishonest or disingenuous. And, and some of that strikes me as stemming from a lack of faith in our fellow citizens to be capable of understanding what's going on and to think for themselves. And Andrew Hamilton, it strikes me, given the length of his oration and given the sophistication of the arguments that he's making, puts an immense amount of trust in the jury of 12 men to override a overly formalistic self-serving reading of the law on behalf of authority and instead commit to a principle both as a political matter, that is to say, allow expression and politicking to, to as, an, as a vent to resist the pressure for revolution, but also uh, to say that you know, a kind of basic sense of fairness and legalness demands a zone of political contestation rather than solving all political problems through the authority of punishment. That's right. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a political fight doubly. There's, there's, there's Cosby and Delancey. Then there's Lewis Morris. I mean, right. You know, he wants his own interests protected. That's why he's doing all this. But the man they've hired, Andrew Hamilton, is able to present his faction's argument as an argument for fairness and for the right to complain and to make that palatable to the 12 random men who ended up on this jury. He, he also – he makes an interesting uh, comparison to uh, New York's religious liberty, which is already so well established that he can do this. He says, you know, once upon a time, we burned people for having religious opinions that we didn't like. We don't do that anymore. So it seems that in New York today, you can very, be very free with your God, but you must not be free with the governor. So he's trying he's – trying, he's, he's trying to say, you know, look, we won we – won freedom in this area here let's have it over here also for our human secular rulers that surely if we can coexist in uh, with disputations and irreconcilable views of the almighty we can coexist we, with with disputatious and irreconcilable views of about of William Cosby, Cosby. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah. exactly um, well i one of uh, one of the great details that you mention here is uh, hamilton of course wins the case and is much vaunted for it. Even though he lives in Philadelphia, he's given the keys to the city um, and they show up in a, in a solid gold box inscribed with the, the Latin motto, uh, non numis virtute paratur, one not by money but virtue. Mm -hmm. I, this is also in many ways a New York story and there's nothing in New York that's won by virtue. It's all won by money. <laughs> um, but what, what 
what we can see as we look at Zanger looking back at the Flushing Remonstrance and looking forward to some of the other documents that you talk about is that liberties intersect with one another. And by this point, people are talking about liberty as a principle worth defending. What liberties – you've just said that you know, uh, religious liberty is a, is a seedbed for the arguments in defense of Zanger. What arguments in defense of Zanger will then looking forward enhance liberty in other realms? Well, um, one thing that Andrew Hamilton says is that the right to complain comes from the laws of our country and from nature. Nature will reappear in arguments for liberty not, not so long after this. Uh, and then the uh, – I think it's important to note that uh, the account of this trial, which was written by Zanger himself and came out a year after it was over, it went around the English-speaking world. It was printed in New York, got reprinted in Boston, reprinted in London. It was attacked in Barbados, probably by the by the royal some royal official there. So uh, English speakers on both sides of the Atlantic were reading about this and taking note of it. And the effect, the immediate effect in colonial America, Andrew Hamilton did not. Uh, illegalized the doctrine of seditious libel. In fact, he was doing like a little jury nullification here. He was – he basically persuaded the jurors to ignore the letter of the law in order to free his client for, for higher, better reasons. But that – the result of the Zanger trial meant that you couldn't have a prosecution for seditious libel in these colonies. So there hardly were any for the next 40 years which it will be very politically fraught and a lot of stuff written and a lot of very seditious libelous stuff written. But royal governors don't go after it because they know they can't find a jury that will bring in a guilty verdict. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.